I've been here for, wow, it's just, the time has just flown by. I think I'm approaching 15 years as, as the senior pastor here at the congregation, and it doesn't seem possible, but the kids are all grown up. Both of my boys are, are at least as tall, and both of them are much stronger than I am now. And it's just gone by so quickly. And though I'd been in ministry for a good number of years before coming here to return to you, my home church, I thought it would be different. Have you ever noticed that if you've never done anything, if you haven't done something before, it's never what you quite expect? Have you ever noticed the difference between the brochure and the reality? Well, a great deal of it was very pleasant in the beginning, but about two weeks in, I got my first uh-oh moment when a woman I'd never met called and had a question. Who's in charge over there? And I don't know if you've noticed, that question never is caused by anything good. <laughs> Nobody ever says, who's in charge around here, and then follows it with, I just wanted to say thank you and tell you what a wonderful job <laughs> all of you are doing. If they want to speak to the manager, it's never good news. And because I was standing in my pastor's office, working at his desk, answering his telephone, and at the time, living in the house he had just moved out of, I kind of looked around the office with expectation of what he was going to do about this, because clearly this lady was not pleased. And then I had the terrible realization that supposedly, presumably, expectedly, I was the one who had to say, well, ma'am, I suppose that's me. How may I be of service? And I did, and it was wildly unpleasant, and that was my first experience of the difference between the brochure and the reality. But who's in charge is a massively important question. Almost every human being answers it the same way. In America, we've made a specialty of answering it in a particular way. When you're asked who's in charge, your heart says, I am. I'm in charge. Let's listen to James, shall we? If you'll look with me in the book of James, chapter 4, I'll remind you this is the brother of Jesus writing. This is the first letter written in the New Testament, probably written in the 40s. In other words, most of the people who knew Jesus himself are still alive. This is early beginning first steps of the Christian church. And persecution has engulfed these first Jewish believers. They've been scattered by that persecution. And you would think James would give them a hug because of their troubles, but he doesn't. I told you last week, James is not always encouraging, but he is always helpful because he is always true. And the truth is always helpful. It may be unpleasant, but it is always helpful. They have a saying in Mexico, much catchier in Spanish, it almost always is, that says something like, truth will never sin, but it does make you uncomfortable. And that's what James is driving at here. Last week, in the paragraph above, he gave them this single hard idea. You can't be friends with the world system and friends of God at the same time. If you will befriend this fallen world and adopt its values and priorities, you at that moment make yourself 
an enemy to God, and the way back to blessing and restoration is to submit to the God who actually loves you and is actually in charge of you. And he continues with that same idea in James chapter 4, verse 13. And I don't, I want to invite you not to be like little kids in Sunday school as you hear this message. Because there's an old joke in ministry circles that little kids in Sunday school know that the answer is always Jesus. Because sometimes teachers aren't very creative and aren't very thoughtful and don't give children nearly enough credit, and they just make it so simple and so obvious that the kids just mindlessly say the name of the Lord time and time again. In this specific passage, because you can read for yourself where this is headed, you might be tempted to say to yourself, I got this. I'm doing this. And my contention is, if you're anything like me, you're probably not doing it nearly as well as you think. Because every single one of us loves to be in charge. Have you noticed? That's why marriage can be difficult. That's why friendships can get strained. That's why many family gatherings are awkward. You've collected a bunch of people who like to be in charge and told them to be nice and to be kind to each other, and that's difficult. And James is going to say one of the most sensible, normal, everyday, this is the way life works, things imaginable in verse 13. So just take it in slowly and ask the Lord to show you how much you're really obeying, how much you're really living, how much you're really thinking according to what he says. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You see anything wrong with that? We're just reading verse 13. Does that strike you as a bad thing? Doesn't that sound normal? Aren't you doing that? You have a plan to maybe put gas in your car and maybe someday pay the car off? Get the kids through school? Rent a place, buy a place, go somewhere, have something nice? Don't you have a plan to make it a little better for yourself, if not for yourself, at least for your kids? Isn't that normal? And it sounds like James has some corrective measures in mind because he says, come on now, I added a preposition to make it a little more American. <laughs> Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. That sounds good. That sounds normal. That sounds like a guy who gets a promotion, right? If he's good enough, maybe they invite him to do a TED Talk. Maybe he gets to write a book or be the keynote or, you know, get the plaque outside the office. Maybe he gets his name put on something. Little tiny plaque says employee of the month and he's racked up five, so he's really hoping that translates into employee of the year and maybe this time a Christmas bonus. This all sounds very good and very normal. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
You believe that? You do. The trouble is acting like it. See, we all know we're fragile, but until we're broken in some way physically, most of us act like we're immortal. Like there will always be tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Are you encouraged yet? <laughs> Go, man, I had a brutal week and now I'm being told my life is just a mist. You get the word picture? Anybody who lives in Huntington Beach, California, or this area should understand this word picture perfectly because we have this little thing called June gloom. By far my favorite time of year. And I wish it lasted all day, but it doesn't. What happens? Eventually the sun comes out, peers through, and just like that it's gone. And some days, days that started like London end up feeling more like Tucson. And it's gone in a moment. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend the year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is what? You think James is being unfair? I told you not to be like Sunday school kids who know the right answer and just... This seems harsh, does it not? Aren't you supposed to have priorities? Aren't you supposed to have plans? Wouldn't you like to retire someday? Would that be nice? Yes, it would be nice, said a hard-working man in the front row. <laughs> so what's going on here? Why is James saying, listen up, all of you who are planning to leave town and stretch out and push out the boundaries and gain new territory, and you have a one-year plan to do better and to make a profit, listen, James says, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring you because your life, I don't know if you've noticed, is like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, and then he gets to the heart of the issue because James is not opposed to planning. I know that's true because God is a planner, and you can be thankful for that. God, in fact, made this spectacular, orderly, beautiful universe of ours and fine-tuned it not only for our survival but for our enjoyment. And God watches what He set in motion and the universe He runs, He watches it run every day, and it gives Him great joy to see His handiwork. God is a planner. Never once in his eternal existence has God had this thought, what will I do now? He's eternal. 
He knows everything. He's in charge of everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He's announced the end at the back of the book. And he speaks of it with the same settled confidence as if it were ancient history already. But here is James talking to people who are in trouble, who in their suffering have started to turn on each other and says, listen, some of you are making big plans and I want to tell you something. I want to remind you something that you may have forgotten in your planning. Your life is just a vapor. You won't be here long and what you should be saying, verse 15 If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, be careful here because Christians get really superstitious really fast. And what I mean by that is we think that by saying certain phrases, we have pleased the Lord. I want to be really careful here because I don't want to offend or discourage anybody in your prayer life. But because of my parents' ministry and because of my time as a missionary, I've traveled, pretty much seen almost all of this great little land of ours and been in a few foreign countries, and only in Southern California have I heard a habit in prayer where one person is praying aloud, and as the others realize that he's coming to the end, they try to join that person by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. You know what I'm talking about? And I like it. I just hope you don't believe that if you don't say that or don't say it together, God can't hear you and listen or answer. We develop little cliches, little phrases, little stock things that Christians say and do, and I don't think that's at all what James is driving at. He's not saying... Make your plans, and then on your way out the door to pursue your plans, say, well, if the Lord wills, because there are other religions that do not account for God, that do not know the true God, who are loaded with pious, quaint, respectful phraseology, and God is not even listening because they don't even know the God that actually exists. So please don't take James' writing as saying, make your plans, just make sure on your way to do them, you say these magic phrases, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. The heart of the matter is in verse 16. As it is, in other words, what you're actually doing James says, is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. What's James trying to tell you? Something that's hard to hear if you're used to running your life. He's trying to tell you this, plans without God are just prideful presumption. If God is not the foundation, the purpose, the daily guide of your plans, you're being prideful and presumptuous. And James's point is, you think you're in charge, but you're not actually in charge of anything. Again, this is going to sound terribly discouraging for a while, and it's going to sound like 
You've come to church after maybe a hard week just to receive a verbal beatdown from some self-important guy with a Bible up in front of everybody, and that's not the case at all. This applies to me. You think you were discouraged this week? Consider my plight. I've been looking at this passage for a few weeks. At least most of you didn't know it was coming. Please understand this truth. You do not have ultimate control over your life. Are you aware of that? Do you believe that? Yes. Yes, you do. The trouble is always moving it into behavior. Here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what James is driving at. You are in your life. You are responsible but not sovereign. You have enormous, God-given, God-blessed opportunities and responsibilities. They are yours. If you do not do them, no one else will, and perhaps no one else should. But you're not sovereign because you can be cut down in a moment. One of the great blessings of my life is to be the father of two young men. I have a sacred responsibility toward them. But I am not sovereign because I do not know how long I will be able to father them. I do not know how long they will live. I do not know how long I will have health and life to relate to them. My life is just, James said, a mist. Gone in a moment. If you want to think about that another way, you can remind yourself of this. You're the manager, but not the owner. We act like owners. We're not owners. We're managers. I know that's true because everything I claim to own and own according to the world's understanding will be taken from me. Why is that? Because God owns it all. If you truly own it, it should not be taken from you, and it will be taken from you. Through accident, through frailty, through weakness, or by death, you have gifts, but you have no property. I told you this a few times. Forgive me if I'm boring you with my grandma's correction to me when I was a seventh grader. I was working at her enormous, largest-in-the-state dog kennel, cleaning up after the dogs. After two days of that in the hot sun of Amarillo, Texas. Don't go to Texas, particularly don't go to Amarillo. <laughs> I told her, Grandma, I'm overqualified for this job. She said, no, you're not. She said, you're right where you need to be. And she went on to tell me with words that probably can't be repeated in a setting like this. <laughs> that she perceived in me a great deal of youthful pride and I should always remember that I could have been born any other number of ways. To not think so highly of my 13-year-old self as I did. What grandma was trying to tell me is, at 13, I had gifts. Those were starting to become apparent. But they weren't mine. They're a very encouraging congregation. I get emails, text messages often, far more than I deserve, thanking me for my teaching. Thank you for the encouragement. 
I wish it could be better. I really do. For God's sake and for yours, I wish it could be better. But I'm always aware that if you talk for a living, one bump on the head and it's over. I've seen it happen. One brain event, one sharp knock on the skull, and somebody's feeding me. That's what James is driving at. You have responsibility with these gifts that God has given you. But they're His gifts. They're on loan to you. You won't have them for long because your life, James says, is just a mist. Your life is short and fragile. And it's joyful. Please don't misunderstand me. Life is blessed and sacred and beautiful and good. It has been stained by sin and ruined beyond our imagination because of the sin that is inside of us and inside each human being and all around us that has bankrupted and killed our relationship and our interest in God that does not return until Jesus supernaturally opens our understanding and humbles us so that we welcome Him as Savior and Lord. And if you haven't done that, that's where you need to start. And this is just so much of a pep talk if you don't have Jesus. And pep talks really are just that. They're just pep. They fade quickly. When I was playing sports, we would always do these little huddles, especially if it was football. And young, self-important men gather around and talk about killing the people on the other side of the field. Humiliating them, hearing the laments of their women as we got back on the bus victorious. And you would go out there like Mel Gibson in the climactic battle scenes of Braveheart ready. And then you found out that the other guy had a vote too. And he knocked the snot out of you, sometimes literally. And the pep talk just faded from memory very, very quickly. That's all this is if you don't have Jesus. This will fade. And if you leave this place saying, that's right, I need to go try harder, you've entirely missed the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is this, God's in charge, not you. You're not sovereign over anything, only He is. Sovereign means that He's in charge, there by definition can only be one sovereign. He has rivals and detractors and enemies, but he may as well not. So easy is it for God to do everything he pleases. See, that's one of the differences between God and us. God does everything he pleases anytime he pleases and is no more tired after doing it than he ever has been because God does not grow weary, we're told in Scripture. And unlike you and me, God does not get confused and think, anyone else is in charge, as we often do. God knows He's in charge. What James is trying to do is to get people who already know Jesus to realign their lives with this simple truth. Their planning is godless. They have thought of what they want. They have thought of what seems like a good idea to them. They have not accounted for God because verse 16 says, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Nothing wrong with planning, but planning that is godless is evil. 
And if I really sit there with that, I wonder as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, as a teacher, all these different hats that I wear, the same way you wear a lot of different hats in your day, how often do I really account for God's will in all of these different roles that He has given me for such a short period of time? What James wants is for you to account for God in this brief life that you have. Because you have opportunities, but no guarantees. I seem a little extra wound up and emphatic on this point. It's, just, it's because I've been saying goodbye to the older boy. And nothing will make this come home faster to you than driving your flesh and blood, the kid who looks so much like you, it's weird. <laughs> I wish we looked more alike, my goodness. He looked at a picture of me on honeymoon with his mother, looked at the picture, looked back at me and said, oh, man. <laughs> he said, what's the point of taking care of this if I'm going to end up like you? It's <laughs> a good question. Point is, I've been saying goodbye to that young man because he's off on a life of his own. Chances are he'll never live at home again. He might, but chances are very, very likely that he won't. His arc is different. And that made me realize how little time I actually had and how much purpose I had missed, and how much I had presumed that there would always be more opportunities, and there won't be. You have opportunities, but no guarantees. Made it hard on me. We drove 2,000 miles away, had as many meals as you would have driving 2,000 miles. And after every meal in every restaurant, when we stood up, that rascal would hug me in the middle of the restaurant. That's not cool. Stop it. People think your dad's having a nervous breakdown, crying in the middle of this restaurant. Please hear me. Whatever age you are, whatever your job is, young or retired, you have opportunities, but you have no guarantees. Which is why the last verse gives us the point. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? That seems to come out of left field, according to some people who studied this passage. It's like James is yelling at people, stop being so proud and presumptuous. You don't have long. Your life is just a mist. You won't be here for long. You have not accounted for God in your life and your plans, and you should. You're acting evil because you do not account for the one true sovereign of the universe who gave you the short life you enjoy. 
Quit it. That's the first 16 verses. And a lot of Bible commentators that I read are a little puzzled about what verse 17 has to do with what James just said. Here's what he's telling you. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? Sin. So what do you do with this brief, short life that you have? Listen, church, and I'm done. Do the good work you already know you should. Do it now. You're not promised tomorrow. Here's the premise that I think James is working under. You already know what to do. You've put it off because you think there will be a better time. You've put it off because you think there will be more time. And by God's mercy and grace, there will be. But nothing is promised. Do the good work you already know that you should. In a sense, preaching and teaching the Bible is one single thing. It's reminding. Because if you know Jesus... If you've been walking with Jesus for at least a year and you've been paying attention to the Lord in His Word and in your prayers, I have a theory. You already know what you should be doing. When we graduated from seminary, we joked in the reception line, we are educated well beyond our obedience now. They keep piling responsibility on us by telling us more things about this God and His Word, and we're not even doing the basics anymore. We keep piling on disobedience by further knowledge. You already know what you should be doing. Listen, some of you may not because you don't yet have a relationship with God. That is what matters most and first. Your situation is urgent. In fact, it's dire because if you die without God, you're hopeless. And Jesus died on the cross so that you could welcome God as your Father and call the Lord your friend and never your judge. But most of you already have God as your Father. You know Jesus is a wonderful friend of yours. You know He's your older brother in the family. You know He's not only your Savior, but He's also your King who is humble and kind enough to also call you His friend. You have some knowledge of what your gifts and opportunities and responsibilities are. If you're a parent, you know why those kids are there. You know how you should be raising them. You know that your mornings or your days at a certain point at least should feature God by quiet time in His Word and by humble heartfelt prayer to gain guidance and direction and encouragement. You know that. You know that giving and loving and serving and earning and taking a portion of that and putting it back into the local church and the work of the kingdom, you know that's important. You already know. That's why James says, verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is what? Sin. For those of you who are a little more geeky, Bible scholars say, speak of sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things that you know you shouldn't do and you do anyway. James here is speaking of a frightening category, sins of omission, that you know what you should be doing and you don't. And James says that missed opportunity, that procrastination, that cowardice, that to you is sin. So get after it. 
Don't wait. Young people, it doesn't get easier with the passage of time. If you don't have children yet, make your marriage sweet and strong now before the kids arrive because they will require more energy from you than you thought anything could and you won't have time. Single people. Nothing magical will happen when you're engaged or married if that's what God has for you. It doesn't get easier with the passage of time. On the contrary, disobedience gets ingrained. It gets easier. You think it's hard now, give it five years going the way you're going. Try to climb out of the rut of disobedience that you're currently making and wait and see what happens. The time to obey, the time to love, the time to serve, the time to step forward, the time to have faith and courage and kindness and all the fruit of the Spirit is, James would say, when would he like to see that? Right now. Do the good work you already know you should. Older folks, don't ruin your legacy. Plan so that your money and your legacy outlast you. Make sure with the brief time you have, you plan and you teach and you write and you pray so that your godliness, your relationship with the Lord outlasts you. Because those of you who are parenting and grandparenting, you have the sacred opportunity, not the guarantee, but you have the opportunity to affect a hundred years of history. By the time your kids have kids and pass on at least some of what you've taught your children, you've touched a a hundred years of human history. That's your opportunity. Don't waste it. The real tragedy, I think, in the Christian faith is not that people are ruining their lives with wicked things, it's that we're frittering frittering away our lives on worthless things that will not matter a moment after we're gone. So this principle, as broad as it is, if you know what to do and you do not do it, James says to you, that is sin. That application, that next step is as different as all the people who will come here this weekend. But you know what to do. Let's go. Let's pray together. Take a moment and just sit quietly with the Lord. You've heard plenty from me. Maybe your mind is crowded with things you know you should be doing. Ask Him to give you clarity on one or two. And commit to Him that you will do what you already know. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I speak to you last, but most importantly, please turn to Christ and be saved. No one else can do it. 
All I can do is point back to him, tell you who he is, tell you he died for you. He will forgive your sins if you turn to him in repentance. But you've been putting that off. Please make that today the day you stop putting him off and you trust him. If you do that, please take the card in your bulletin and let us know. Talk to people here at the cross in prayer. Talk to me personally. Send me an email. Stand up and be counted. Let the world know that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. Father, there are gifts and opportunities represented in our lives as individuals, in our family, and in this family of faith, Lord, our congregation, that will do so much good if only we would individually, humbly seek you and say, Lord, that we will do all the good we already know. Very few of us, if any, need further instruction. We just need more obedience. So I pray that you would begin with me and that you would move in the hearts of moms and dads and singles and kids, Lord, in Sunday school right now, students in our youth ministry, college and young adults, couples who just got married, Lord, across all the different lifespans. Help us all see our life as short and exceedingly precious and filled with your potential for obedience and help us do what we already know we should. We will thank you in Jesus' name and Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you.